why I am a Christian and how. Why I am a Christian and how. Hmm. Well, I can't really explain it. This is the fourth version of what I'm going to say that I've written, and it's still not right, so bear with. Uh, My life of faith is like a TV series in which the narrative remains unresolved. But like all serialised dramas, we need a bit of previously. So let me take you back to Hounslow. Romantic, I know. This is how my memory replays it. It was a Sunday morning. I was six years old. My parents were at church, Wellington Road Gospel Hall, a tin tabernacle just off the Staines Road. My older brother, who was nine, and I were bouncing up and down on my parents' bed because they weren't there to tell us not to. And he said, you know you've got to ask Jesus into your heart. Yeah, I said, because I did know. That's how you got to be saved. And if you weren't saved, well, the consequences were beyond imagining. So when are you going to do it, my brother asked. Now, I said. And I knelt down by the bed. Not sure why I knelt. In the brethren, we were crouchers, not kneelers. But even at that age, I think I must have realized that this was some kind of ritual moment, a kind of initiation ceremony. And I prayed, Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. And that was it. I was saved. I was a born-again Christian who was going to heaven when I died. When mum and dad came back from church, I told them, and they beamed and said, praise the Lord, quite a lot. And they killed the fatted calf. Well, actually, it was roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, which was the same as we always had on Sunday, but there was definitely a celebratory mood. Actually, I didn't feel any different, but it was job done. I was a Christian for all eternity. All I had to do was get through this life, this veil of tears, until I could go and be with the Lord. That happened 63 years ago. As it happens, this veil of tears hasn't turned out quite so bad I'm rather enjoying it, and partly that's because I'm still a Christian, just. But what it means and how I express it are not at all the same. Back then I was initiated into a tribe which felt warm, secure and certain. We had built a fortress against the dark, godless world outside. We were separate, clean, unblemished by worldliness, by the sins of the flesh. No drinking, no smoking, no cinema, no dancing. No fun. (laughs) Yes, telling your mates after football that they were sinners and needed to invite Jesus into their hearts, otherwise they'd suffer eternal punishment, wasn't exactly popular. But being thought a weirdo was part of the heroism of being a Christian. I should say that I did find it sufficiently embarrassing being a Christian that between the ages of 11 and 15, during school hours, I pretended I wasn't. I led an entire double life, but I didn't stop believing. I now realize that I was effectively imprisoned by my faith and by my upbringing, but it didn't feel like that. We called the grown-ups uh, Uncle Arthur, Auntie Marjorie, Uncle George, and Auntie Betty. We knew everything right and wrong, how the world begun, how it would end. It had an internal logic all made sense, and all you needed was a simple, trusting, childlike faith. Amen. The problem was my upbringing wasn't porous. 
The Baptists were suspect, the Anglicans weren't proper Christians, and the Catholics were sunk because they worshipped Mary and the Pope was the Antichrist. So there were no dissenting voices because if you dissented, you left or you were ushered to the door. So it took me a long time to realise that despite our railings against superstition and its statuary, we were in fact idolaters. We worshipped the Bible. The Bible was God's inerrant revelation. It was how God spoke to us. It was our judge and arbiter. It was complete and perfect. It was all you needed. And the brethren were self-taught theologians who spent hours poring over the text, arguing about what it meant. This was life and death stuff. But while we tussled about what it meant, we never once questioned whether it was true or right. If you'd asked me then why I was a Christian, I'd have said, because the Bible said so. As a result of that and uh, this particular uh, theological spin we had, I believed in a volatile God who loved his own unless they disobeyed him, who had a plan for my life, but I had to guess what it was. I misread the signal, so he was perpetually disappointed with me, joined by a picture-perfect Christ who regarded me with a sad, long-suffering eyes, ruining the fact that I didn't love him enough. I was uncomfortable, clenched, but I didn't know why. So I needed to be saved again. But this was no longer the case of kneeling by my bedside and asking God to intervene. It was a much longer program, something I'm still engaged in day by glorious day. And it started when I got a place at art school at the age of 16 in 1966. I have been saved by reading novels like The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, which opened up the possibility that people might be essentially good rather than essentially wicked. I was saved by rock and roll that showed me, in Van Morrison's word, that I could smell the sea and see the sky, feel the sky and let my soul and spirit fly into the mystic. I was saved by paintings like the shifting rich colours of Bonnard's interiors, which exuded flamboyance and generosity. Yes, for years in my early 20s and 30s, I remained haunted by the ghost of St Paul, hamstrung by John Calvin, who the Australian poet Les Murray calls the unforgiver in his Taliban hat, hemmed in by a belief that Christianity could deliver a unified theory of everything. But I was and am saved by finding God, by discovering Jesus, by experiencing the Holy Spirit beyond the book. I have found God in the natural world, in its abundance and uncertainty and beauty, in its unchartable vastness and its subatomic uncertainty. If I believe anything, it is that God is not some single remote being who plans our lives and intervenes to make things happen, but is inextricably bound up in the warp and weft of his, her, their creation, collaborating with us in our destiny. I sense that God is deep within who we are and what we do which means that God's word can be expressed, be expressed beyond the book, beyond the church, and in our lives lived authentically. I think that at my core, I'm lonely. I need company, 
And that expresses itself in the need to find a kind of ultimate companionship. See, I can't conceive that we're alone in this universe because everything depends on everything else. And that ultimate companionship is embodied in my relationship with you and you and you and you. I am still a Christian because I have learned to let go of belief and to learn from experience in a process of holy trial and error. And that's that it's all right not to know. I allowed reluctantly at first life, real people, to invade my citadel of certainty and not knowing has come as a real relief. Here's an example of how I was saved again. In my early 30s, a friend of mine asked me to meet him in the pub. He had something he wanted to tell me. He told me he was gay. Like me, he'd grown up as a keen young Christian, so was torn apart by shame and a sense of having let God down and didn't know what to do, and I didn't know either. Suddenly, I was faced with someone I knew, someone close, whose identity, whose nature did not fit God's format. I knew in theory that the feelings he had were an abomination, but he was still my friend. How, I wondered, could a loving God, a compassionate father, deny who this wonderful man <clears throat> actually was? How could God stand in the way of his fulfillment and his flourishing. It didn't make sense. Obviously, this revelation didn't all happen at the same time. It didn't happen in the time that it took for a sink to drink a couple of pints. It took years of working out for both of us. But that day, that spell was broken. I came to the conclusion that what the biblical text said or what I believed that text meant could not be true. What took place is that real life kicked in the door of my castle. The elaborate construction with its internal self-referential logic no longer stood up. Slowly I began to realise that if the Bible was a suspect on this, perhaps I was reading it wrong. Either I needed to chuck the Bible out or I needed to read it right. That drink essentially set me off on a quest to reimagine what it meant to be a Christian. But I didn't do it alone, and I couldn't have. My re-salvation has been the product of friendship, of trading stories, of sharing experiences and insights with other people with and beyond the faith community. It's been a product of living with someone I love and who loves me, of raising children and learning from them. Underlying this is the recognition that if this Christian stuff has any value at all, then it needs to bear fruit in the flourishing of human beings and the well-being of our planet and beyond. The late lamented speaker and writer Mike Iaconelli said that one of his most important discoveries was that God liked him. Not so much loved him, but liked him. And I find this a transformative idea, that God isn't disappointed with you and me. God thinks that we're all right. In fact, he enjoys our company, likes what we like, wants us to succeed. And this concept has helped me to reimagine Jesus, to see not so much the distant, sinless son of God, but the earthier, more approachable son of man. 
the imaginative storyteller, the dinner guest you want to stay forever, the friend who really gets you, the witty provocateur who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, the person who's prepared to put their life on the line for someone else. And I haven't abandoned the Bible, though I did have to leave it alone for a while. I no longer believe that it's God's book which tells us who we are. I think that it's an extraordinary human book which tells us what we think about God. And I number the writers and assemblers of the Bible as friends and fellow travellers. They, like us, are trying to compose a story about why there's something rather than nothing, why we're here on this staggering planet and how we live this beautiful but baffling life. This book we read, these songs that we sing, these prayers that we say, the friends that we make, are not some given, not some citadel which we need to hide within or defend against some enemy. I would rather see them as a trellis that gives shape and framework upon which we climb and blossom. It's taken a while, but I'm beginning to flower. I'm still a miserable old git, but I'm as happy as an old git as I've ever been. Just now we played that lovely song, The Valley, sung by Katie Lang, written by the Canadian singer-songwriter Jane Seabury, and it's her version of the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd. The song went, you may remember, you rise every morning wondering what in the world will the world bring today. Will it bring you joy or will it take it away? And every step you take is guided by the love of the light and the blackbird's cry. You will walk in good company. That's being a Christian for me. Walking in good company. Thank you for yours.